So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man. Just a word of warning, as the title of this episode suggests, our middle feature this week does deal with some difficult themes. Here's what's coming up today. How many more ways do I have to restrict my life because of what this man has done to me? From travel implications to trigger warnings, a rape survivor who brought her assailant to court reveals what nobody tells you about rape. Plus... A few people said that they'd had a lot of success with sea sponges. Alex Fox investigates eco-periods and Ollie Peart spends the night in a pod. It's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters. Chris has tweeted at The Modern Man to say Ollie Peart's car wrapping adventures have unquestionably doubled the value of his motor. Uh, unquestionably. Well, let's let's see, Chris. There, there aren't any offers yet, as I understand. But uh, do feel free to seek out Mr. Peart directly if you're interested in buying his old Peugeot 206, now featuring a bright purple Soundwave-inspired roof. Uh, also, hello to Tom Meadows. Uh, you may remember Tom as our guest in the Season 7 episode, The Ten Commandments of Touring. Uh, he was the session drummer for Kylie. Uh, it was a good chat. If you haven't heard that episode and you're interested in the music industry, do check it out. Uh, anyway, Tom has been nominated for Live Session Drama of the Year. So congratulations, Tom. He's up against 11 other nominees, including Paloma Faith's drummer and Niall Rogers' drummer. <laughs> I know it's weird, isn't it? But uh, anyway, it's a public vote. So that's why I'm telling you. I'm going to put a link up on our website. And I'm not saying I want you to skew the vote, man fans, but let's see what happens if you skew the vote. Go, Tom. Uh, Right, in this episode, you will learn what your lizard brain is, you'll learn about a controversial use for a sponge, and you'll learn what makes Alex Fox smell cherry Bakewell tarts. And it isn't the presence of cherry Bakewell tarts. Let's go. Time to test out your listener-submitted trends with the not-entirely-listener-submitted Ollie Peart. It's the zeitgeist. Hello. Hi, Ollie. How are you? I'm all right, thank you, but then I've been sleeping in a decent bed. You've been staying the night in a pod hotel, thanks to man-fan Hannah from Tunbridge Wells. How did that go? If you're thinking of a pod hotel, the first thing that comes into your head is probably those Japanese beds that basically look like a morgue. You get a terrible TV some Wi-Fi, and when you wake up in the morning, you bang your head. Yeah, although I must say, that experience, were I in Japan, I think would be a fun thing to try once. I would just wouldn't want to do it in a Premier Inn in Manchester. I know exactly what you mean. I'm going to Japan. You know what? I'm going to yeah. a capsule hotel. Now, there's the difference, Ollie. They're a capsule hotel. What I went to was a pod hotel, and they are different. The pod has a little bit of stand-up room. I don't know if you ever played Tetris as a kid. I can imagine you did. You look like the kind of kid that would. I spent six years playing nothing but Tetris till my thumbs bled. So the two L's, imagine two of those locked together. That's essentially what you've got. Oh, no. So that there's some bloke sleeping directly above you or next to you. Directly just through above a very thin or wall. below. Yeah, exactly. So the first one that came up on my radar was a hotel called City Hub. And they got two pod hotels. They got one in Amsterdam and they got one in Rotterdam. So the way that this hotel set up, it's not just a pod hotel with its little pods. The idea is, is that the whole thing is like void of human contact. What a great idea for a holiday. <laughs> You go in and there's an iPad in front of you. There's a whole bunch of them. And you realise very quickly that everything is self-service. So you get a little wristband that you use to then check in. You scan it. It works the same way as a, a an Oyster card. You sort of tap it on your door. But it does it for everything. So if you want a cup of coffee, you beep. It makes you coffee. Charges it to your room. If you want a shot of vodka, beep. You get your shot of vodka. Charges it to your room. I went for the top bunk like everybody would. When you walk into your pod you get a little tiny section where you can stand up with a full-length mirror 
and you can basically get changed and do all that kind of stuff. And what they've done is combined the shelves, so the shelves where you can put your clothes if you want and hang your clothes up on the rail, that actually becomes the mm. climbing device to get to your bed. That's weird. Yeah. But uh, but it was fine because I, I had to travel light anyway because I'm quite stingy. So I wore a onesie to the airport. I don't understand. There are other options. A gilet. It's a new type of onesie that is... It, a briefcase with numerous pockets. Well, that's essentially, yeah, it's essentially a wearable briefcase with loads of pockets, right? You just The idea is, is that you travel in this thing. The only problem is that, you know, you know when you, um, you know when you get an early morning flight? I really thought you were going to say boner. <laughs> <laughs> yes, early morning flight. Yeah, sure. You know, it messes around with your, your movements, your bowels and stuff. So you need to go. And um, this... And it's all in one. Yeah. It's all in one. But this thing, this thing has a poo flap. Does it really? It's got a poof. There's an innovation we should be discussing. Yes. Was that a new thing? Was that the new for 2018 model? It is. It's the the poof flap is the thing. It's called a, a rear exit solution. That's what it's called. Were you really in a onesie, Ollie, or were you in a hospital gown? No, it was a onesie. It was a fleecy onesie designed for travel with a poof flap. You did really take the whole pod concept very far, didn't you? Because your pod wasn't just when you got to Rotterdam. It was you were all the time in your own personal pod. Pod life, Ollie, isn't it? Well, you were there with with uh, the future Mrs. Pitt, weren't you? I was, yeah. I mean, is it possible? Would it be possible to be romantic on that top bunk bathed in purple light? It sounds small. Yeah, easily. I mean, but then that's coming from me. What am I? Five foot five, something like that. I'm quite a short individual. The, the bed itself is comfortable, weren't it? But when it comes to the changing situation, yeah, you've got to go one at one at a time. And also, yeah. you know, they're shared bathroom and showers. I got to speak to the owner of this place, a guy called Sem, because I said, you know, like, surely people are put off with that, you know, like the idea of sharing a bathroom with other people. And he said, yeah, but the advantage we have, because they're going to open up a few more of these things. They've got two, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, they're opening one up in Copenhagen next year and London, blah, blah, blah. And he said that we can then spend the money on the bathroom. So we're going to basically have like a sauna, steam room. We're going to have like mm. all of the a jacuzzi. So then the idea being that your bathroom becomes a bit of a five-star experience, whereas your room's just a bed with some fancy lights in it. So all in all, do you think this is going to be a sustainable trend? Do you think we will be staying in pod hotels in the in the years to come? Yeah, I do, because they've started like popping up and spawning, particularly in expensive cities in Europe. So Moscow is one of the most expensive places for a business traveller to go and stay for the night. So there's been these various little pod hotels opening up in Moscow. That's going to start happening all over Europe. And it's happening here. You know, that Premier Inn one that's opening up in, uh, there's one in Southampton that's going to open up. If you just want one night, you don't want to spend 100, 120 quid. And if you can kind of get over the size of the rooms, then it's fine. Right. Uh, time to check in with your other ongoing challenge, which is your quest to write a Christmas song, which has somehow become, in your mind, a challenge to achieve Christmas number one. Uh, how has that been going? I spoke to Mel, who is the lady that helps us out with our songs of the week. Our record company liaison. She told me that for Christmas, you need more sales than you would do if you wanted to just be number one anyway. It might seem obvious, but if we wanted to be number one in February, we'd probably stand more of a chance. Yeah, I'm trying to think whether there's another time of the year where there's such attention on who's number one. I don't think there is. Like, if you think about it, it's the only time there is an edition of Top of the Pops now, isn't it? It's Christmas time. And I couldn't really tell you who's... I mean, I can't. I actually can't tell you who's number one now. I can tell you who's number one, actually. It's Ari oh, Ariana Grande. She sold, to get to number one, last week, 72,872 records. That's not that many, is it? No, although that track itself wasn't actually released on anything physical at all. So that is purely digital purchases or paid for streaming. Because it gets complicated, doesn't it? Because the digital streaming, it's not like when you say 72,000, each one stream is equivalent to more than that, isn't it? So for every 100,000 listens, that counts as 1,000 purchases. But that's paid streaming, right? So that's if you are a subscriber to Spotify... That would that's how yeah. that it counts that. But if you watch it on YouTube, that hundred thousand to a thousand then becomes six hundred thousand to a thousand. What you learnt is it's not worth trying to break YouTube. What I've learnt is is that if you ha- if you stand any chance in becoming number one, let alone just at Christmas, you've got to be on playlists. 
right? So Spotify playlists are like an absolute priority. Everybody wants to be on New Music Friday. And not only that, but you want to be in the top 20 of that playlist because people get bored. And so roughly, approximately, how many sales do you need to achieve to be Christmas number one? So last year's Christmas number one was Ed Sheeran, right? With Perfect, yes. if you remember that song. It's been almost constantly played since that day. And to get to number one, he reached 85,397. So, okay. So it's, it's, it's not as much as you think. I, I think it's within the realms of achievability. In all honesty, Ollie, I don't. But I do think with those kinds of... If that's all you need to get to Christmas number one, it does... It's not a completely unachievable dream, is it, if we're being serious for a moment, that you could make the Christmas top 40? Yeah, I think so. And even if we don't get a number one, I want to be in that battle. I want people having that conversation. Does that mean hiring a press person? How do you get the word out there? Well, look, I've got Phil working on the song. I've got the science... And I've got the stats that I need to make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm chasing the right people to get to number one. I've got a plan. You've got everything, haven't you? Except the talent. The talent is there. You just haven't seen it yet. Ollie, it's time to reveal your challenge for next week. And today it comes courtesy of man fan Kevin, who says, I'd like Ollie to try some of these new workout apps and tell us if they really are better than going to the gym. <sighs> This is one of those where you don't have to leave the house, Ollie. You like those. No, it's not. It's one of those ones where you have to do exercise and look like a complete... I just can't... Come on. This just reminded me that you, last season, were going to try out that bouncer size thing in your own house and then didn't. What happened with that? Um, I got it. It's still in the boxes under the spare room bed. A company sent you an exercise trampoline and you haven't bothered to put the DVD in. Well, can you do that as part of the challenge as well? <sighs> I want you bouncing, I want you downloading, and I want you sweating. <laughs> oh. Yeah, fine. Ollie, thank you. Coming next, man fans, we will hear from Martha and her journey through the court system. Before that, it's our record of the week. It's the debut single from a quartet from Ontario. They're called Dizzy. The song is Swim, and it's out now. Sing to the pilot. Innocuous form I'm underwater Half of the day But still you wait Till I'm ready to flow This show is free to download, but it is not free to produce. We are a completely independent production and rely on your donations to help fund the show. Do your bit by buying us a virtual beer. The average price of a pint of beer in Britain is £3.60, about five US dollars. Sign up now to buy us one beer a month or however often you can afford. Just visit modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click Beer Money to complete our secure payment form. Or if you prefer, you can use PayPal. All the links are there. That's modernman.co.uk and click Beer Money. Cheers. Now, as you know on this show, we are always keen on your suggestions for future guests. And sometimes man fans even get in touch to suggest themselves. Well, recently a listener called Martha Adam got in touch. She said, Ollie, you've asked a few times for your listeners to suggest people you could go and interview. And I've always thought, I don't really know anyone. Then I heard the episode you made last season with the couple who'd had multiple miscarriages. And that made me wonder whether my story might be of interest. I don't have a crazy tale like the guy who donates sperm privately or the diving guy who smuggled all the drugs, but your episode about miscarriages showed there are everyday things that just aren't talked about and should be. I am a rape survivor. Thankfully, this is an issue that is being talked about more thanks to movements like Me Too, but we still tend to focus on the incident itself. What about what happens afterwards? Well, producer Matt and I went to meet Martha a few weeks ago, and this is her story. The thing that no one really tells you 
about being raped is how it actually feels and not the not the act itself but how it feels afterwards and that for me is the beginning because you can you can work really hard and you can get past the actual event itself but afterwards it's just this whole kind of black hole of you don't know what you're going to feel so the word rape I didn't use the word rape for a week someone else did so someone that I told I told what had happened and they said Martha you've been raped what words were you using I was just being really practical. I said no and he didn't stop. I didn't have any other word for it. How many people did you tell? One person. He was amazing. He was saying, do you want to go to a doctor? Do you want to report it? Do you want to do any of these things? And my whole brain, I was just like, I can't, I don't even, I can't talk about this. What is happening? So I just swept under the rug and kept going. So a week went by. What happened at the end of that week? So I broke down to a colleague at work. I just started crying and and I said to her that I was raped. And that was the first time that I'd said it out loud. Where were you? So I was working I was working in retail at the time and so I just I'd said to her on the shop floor, Can we go and talk? And uh, so we were just sitting in one of the offices. And I was quite lucky in that she had actually knew other people who that had happened to. I don't even remember what we did next. I don't remember if I went back to work or I remember nothing about that but then over the next kind of couple of days she took me to the sexual health clinic to get a check and that in itself was weird and again kind of saying it to the doctor because this whole time you're still there's a certain level of denial you're still thinking this isn't actually happening to me Mm. did I get it wrong that's the main thing as well is that you are constantly in doubt that you right that you were actually raped because the world is constantly telling you that you weren't every time we talk about consent every time we talk about what is rape you're constantly trying to redefine what rape is so these are questions like did you know the man yeah did you know the man had you been drinking what were you wearing i mean you hear the stuff in america like there was that senator who said oh well if it's legitimate rape the body has a way of not getting pregnant and such absolute crap like that but it is that is what it constantly is, is the world. There's no, I can't think of any other crime that we're constantly debating. Because of that, when it happens to you, you're always doubting yourself. And then you almost are collecting kind of the reasons why you know it happened to you. Because deep down, you know it happened to you. But it's through people saying to me, well, this is what rape is. And they're saying, yes, that is what happened to me. But presumably those aren't questions that get asked in the sexual health clinic. No, but the sexual health clinic was a good example where I was sitting there thinking maybe I'd got it wrong. And then I just lay down on the bed and she had barely even started before I was just completely sobbing. Mm. And I've had normal STI tests before and none of that had ever happened to me. So it was just one of those things of being like, okay, yes, something really bad has happened to me. So then I'd had the test and we were sitting outside with this colleague and she said to me, do you want to report it? And she had asked me that before and I'd said no. Why did you say no? Because I felt like, again, it felt too big. Like I've never been in a situation where I've had to even go to a police station. So to go to a police station and say I was raped and have to talk to a load of strangers about this really intimate thing that's happened to you. And then also the idea of how would I even prove it? Because no one else was there. So why would they believe me? So I had said no. And then this second time she asked me and she said to me that she'd known other people who had reported it. And it had helped them get their power back. And that really stuck with me because that is what you feel like. You feel so powerless and so alienated from your body as well. It's like you've lost so much in that one moment. You've lost. I felt like I was in my own brain And my body was just this thing that was attached to me. Because if your body can't stop that happening in that moment, you're like, well, it can't stop anything else. I did just feel so alienated from myself and so lost and so powerless. So when she said that to me, I thought, okay, well, maybe, maybe this might give me something. Do you remember what happened next? So, yeah, we had to go into a room and then I was basically interviewed. So I literally just had to start from the top and describe everything that happened and everything I remembered what did they offer in the way of support I mean presumably they thrust a leaflet in your hand do they no I, there was no leaflets my Nothing. colleague no so because what happened 
next was that they wanted to take me to a SARC and I can't remember what SARC stands for but it's basically a centre where you get like all the sort of DNA swabs and everything like that because it had been a week I was like this is completely pointless there's going to be nothing on me trust me when I say I've showered about 100 times but we went anyway so we'd had the whole interview they said they wanted to go to a SARC they took me and my colleague in the back of a police van which felt really weird I was just like I feel like a criminal I haven't done anything and I'm in the back of a police van and they had mentioned that they'd want to take my phone so I remembered this whole conversation with my colleague being like I'd they're going to take my phone. I don't know what to do about that. I haven't told my parents. I haven't told anyone else. I'm going to need to get a new phone. Does that mean I'm going to need a new number? But I will get my old phone back. Like you're focusing on the really small things because everything else is too big and it's these small little disruptions to your life that just are like a kick in the teeth. Like I can't keep my frigging phone. Mm. And then so then we got to the sock and the women there said exactly what I thought she'd say we I was felt like I was waiting for ages and then she was like well there's nothing there's nothing I can take from you because it's been a week and then you just sent home yeah like reporting a robbery just we'll keep in touch Mm. we'll let you know yeah did you live alone at this point no so I lived in a flat chair but they had decided they wanted to come and try and get any evidence from my bedroom because it had happened in my bedroom and so I'd had to text my flatmates being like this has happened there's going to be policemen coming over. So the way our flat was set up, me and one of the girl lived upstairs. Um, like literally our bedrooms were opposite. And so there was this forensic guy in my room, like going through my bin and stuff like that. And that was just crazy. And I had to like help him go through the bin and stuff and pull out stuff that could be relevant. And and then my flatmate was just standing there in her bedroom door being like, Martha, I feel sick. Because I think she was home at the time. So I was signed off work for three weeks with PTSD. So I was just kind of floating around the house, not really knowing what to do with myself. But the weird thing was that I found is that actually I needed to tell people. And I think this is probably quite unusual because I know that so many people just bury it and they can't even, they'll go decades without ever being able to say what happened to them. For me, it was just too big. I couldn't live in a world where people didn't understand why I was like, screaming in my head so I had to tell people because I couldn't even be around people if they didn't understand what was happening to me and and even that saying that out loud is yet another thing where the little voice of doubt in my head being like well that's weird rape victims don't do that they keep it secret so maybe that means that never happened to you had he been in touch following the rape yeah he did the day after and I told him basically you know fuck off (laughs) I can't yeah, yeah. Don't don't contact me again. Was the tone of his text oblivious to you having felt violated? No, he. I think he recognised that something had gone wrong. He'd said, um, "Don't let this ruin our weekend," which is <laughs> yeah, it's completely outrageous. That's why the police wanted your mobile. Yeah, but other than that, I didn't hear from him. Um, yeah, so once they'd come, the police man came to my house and took took the mobile and talked a bit about what would happen next and I think it was in the next kind of few days that he and another policeman came and took me to this like house that they had set up near where I was living which is where they would do the video testimony because what they can do is they record your record like the bulk of what your testimony would be in a court situation so that then in the actual courtroom they play that and then you just have to be cross-examined ask questions by the lawyer so you don't have to recount it all so there was one of the policemen was basically asking me the questions kind of about what happened and getting me to describe it and that was okay the policemen they were both really nice but there was one point where he asked well how has it impacted you how do you feel and just started waffling how do you how do you even answer that question my whole life feel like it's blown apart I was in Tesco and standing in front of the biscuit aisle and didn't know what my favorite biscuit was and for some reason at the at that moment that was the worst possible thing of just not knowing myself to the fact that I didn't even know what my favourite biscuit was. <laughs> and it's just sitting there thinking, how is this, how have I completely lost my identity? How have I completely forgotten who I am because of this one thing that this one person has done to me has just blown apart my whole life? And when you, you keep saying it, it felt too big. Yeah. That sort of implies that you feel small. Yeah. Compared to it. Yes. 
Yeah. There was one time I was supposed to go into a friend's house and it was literally ten minute walk down the road and she recognised. She was like, I will come and pick you up. And then but it's interesting, isn't it? Because logically you, you weren't attacked in the street no. by someone you didn't know. This no. happened in your house with someone you didn't know. Yeah. So you'd think, well, psychologically, why is that affecting you yeah. when you're doing the thing you've always done, walking down yeah. the street and you felt safe before? Yeah. But it knocks your confidence. It knocks your confidence. It suddenly makes you aware that this thing can happen to you that you don't anticipate. And so then you're hyper aware of it happening again. You're hyper aware of it happening again or something else happening. Someone else hurting you and knowing that you can't defend yourself, even if you try, that you can't, there's nothing you can do to stop it. So literally anyone at any moment could do something to you and you'd have no control. And if someone was just going to come along and touch my arm when I wasn't expecting it and I wouldn't be able to say no and I wouldn't have any control over it. So you're suddenly existing in the world feeling like anyone could do anything to you at any time and you have no control. And did you find yourself becoming less tactile with your friends and family as well? Yes. It was really difficult because you're in a situation of you desperately need to be looked after. You desperately need the care and you want to you want to touch people. You want to be hugged and looked after. And sometimes I could and that was fine. And then sometimes I couldn't. And the thing that no one tells you is that goes on. So what I'm talking about there was happening um, a couple of months after. But I'm sitting here eight years later and I still sometimes get that way. Mm. If someone touches me by surprise, like if I, you know they come up from behind me or whatever, mm. I will freak out. And this thing my therapist talked about um, called, it's the different parts of your brain. So there's the part which isn't particularly evolved that covers like all your sort of base instincts and the need to, you know, eat and drink and live and breathe. And then you've got the more, the kind of front part of your brain, which is all about the rational side, etc., and the reasoning and stuff like that. And she called the, the first one the lizard brain. So the lizard brain works a lot faster. So if someone's touching me, all the lizard brain is thinking, that cannot happen again, jump away. Sometimes they will literally flinch away, like several paces. And it's difficult for me to control that. The lizard brain doesn't respond to reason. So I know I'm in a safe place. I know that, you know, even sometimes it happens at home. I know the only person here is my fiancé who is never going to hurt me. But I'm still, the lizard brain is still like, nope, can't let this happen again. And that's a really difficult way to live. And you work on it and you work on it and you do therapy and you do everything kind of in air quotes right. But it still happens to you. And that's, the, and that's what no one tells you. No one tells you. Everyone, we talk about what happens right after or, you know, and all the really important stuff, like it isn't your fault. All of the kind of myths, the victim vein myths, we talk about that, but we don't talk about what feels like a life sentence. We talk about the perpetrator and what could happen to him, how his life could be ruined because he made this one decision. We don't talk about what happens to the survivors, that they genuinely have to live with it for the rest of their lives how long did you stay living in in the flat where it had happened i stayed there the whole time how was that it was hard i didn't feel like i wanted to leave because i didn't know where else i could go i didn't want to leave my flatmates and have to try and find someone new like in the frame of mind that you're in to try and like go and look around and find a nice place that you want to live and find like new flatmates when you feel like at this at this point in time I am the worst company ever <laughs> like I don't feel like a nice person to be around and I am terrified of new people so for me moving out wasn't an option it was either moving home or moving out and I did seriously consider moving home but it felt like giving up so it took about 18 months before it got to court 18 months. 18 months, yeah. I mean, how were you feeling a year later, say? I was really struggling. I mean, obviously, you're back at work, you're going about your life. But I can say with hindsight that I was just an absolute mess. I probably thought maybe five, six months that, oh, okay, I'm kind of, I'm doing all right. I'm getting on. But you, in hindsight, I could say, no, actually, there was the time when you sank a bottle of wine by yourself, passed out in the bathroom and your flatmate found you. <laughs> so... Actually, I wasn't fine. And it was around that time that I actually got a new job and I moved away. So I moved away from my hometown, moved away from where it had happened. 
so I was effectively starting a new life. You know, in many ways that was great, but obviously I knew that this was coming. I knew that the case was still happening. I still was being contacted by the police that were working on it. It follows you. And presumably the case is brought by the Crown, right? Yes. That you're not paying for that. No, no, no. So, yes, brought by the Crown. So. But then that means you presumably don't get a say over who the lawyers are, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's it. You are a witness. You're a witness for the Crown. So, even though this thing has happened to you and it's impacted your life, you are a witness for the Crown. These are not your lawyers. They're not there to protect you, they're there to get the guilty verdict. Mm. And obviously, that is a, a mutual goal. But, like I said, there's no protection for you. Um, so I went to this meeting and so they talked about, um, did I want to be behind a screen? Did I want to be on a video link? And initially I said no. Behind a screen? Yes. So the way that a screen would work is that I, the judge would be able to see me, the jury would be able to see me, and the lawyers would be able to see me. But the public wouldn't be able to, and the perpetrator wouldn't be able to. Mm. And initially I said no, um, because I felt like this was me standing up for myself. Why am I going to hide? And actually, it was the solicitor who said to me, like, but why would you do this to yourself? Because everyone who needs to see you will still be able to see you and you will be able to see them. Mm -hmm. It's just meaning that you don't have to see him. And so then I thought about it and then I thought, okay, actually, that, that does make a bit more sense. Why make it harder for myself? I remember the prosecution barrister being kind of like flamboyant <laughs> she was quite sort of a like you could see her being an actress and I guess being a barrister you there is a certain amount of acting and I remember her looking at me and saying you're the star of the show this is all about you and just thinking like I don't want it to be all about me mm. but of course it is because there is nothing else there's only me mm. um, it's, it's all dependent yes. on your testimony yes and they had so they had witnesses in terms of they had like one of my friends was going to be kind of a character witness for me. And then the colleague that I'd reported it to, she was also going to give testimony. But yeah, it's all on me because there's no one else was there. And was there any evidence as such? Or was it literally all on your word? So they had got some messages off the phone. I think there might have been some, maybe something in forensic, but I don't know because they didn't tell me. They don't really tell you. They just say this is your your... It's all about your testimony. They don't really tell you what else they have. You didn't attend the rest of the court case. You just went for your bit. Yeah, so, yes, I just went for my bit. So I think I could have had the option stayed if I'd wanted it. But I Did think... they tell you what the chances were of uh, getting a guilty verdict? No. What was your sense? I thought that because of the text message where he'd been like, don't let this ruin it, I thought maybe that meant that we might get a guilty verdict. But maybe you might not. Yeah. What was it like being cross-examined in court? That was like an additional, like a whole brand new trauma. Because I was sitting behind a screen, the way they'd done it is it wasn't actually a screen, it was basically a door. So I got led a different way into the court. I got led through judges' chambers and then I'm sitting basically at the same level as the judge but just like behind <laughs> behind this open door. And so the perpetrator was on the other side of the door so I could see the jury, could see the lawyers. They played my video testimony first. So I had to sit there while they were playing that. And I remember looking at it and thinking, I, I don't, who is this person? Mm. I didn't even recognise myself. I felt really sad for the person that was on the screen because she looked so small. And I suppose you're seeing it through the jury's eyes weirdly, are yeah. you? You're thinking, do I trust this person? Yes. Do I believe this person? Yeah. It's a weird thing to ask yeah. of yourself. So yeah. then what happens next? So then you have then you have the cross-examination. So you have the defence. The defence lawyer was a woman. And I remember staring at her thinking, how can you do this? <laughs> you're betraying me. You're betraying womanhood. I couldn't get my head around it, how she could possibly defend this guy. You know on an intellectual level that her job is to undermine your story, right? Mm. Is to make you seem like you're lying. But you don't understand it until it's happening and suddenly it's this barrage of questions did you punch him no did you kick him no did you scratch him no did you bite him no so why not and I'm saying because I thought he might kill me but why what possible reason could he have given you to think that he would kill you because <laughs> he's raping me but you can't say that because what did you say I said no because 
you can only really answer yes or no. You're trying not to come across as the like hysterical woman. The well, they, I mean, they deliberately victim. ask you forensic yes. questions that you can only answer exactly. yes or no to. Yes, and they'll mix it round so that you'll like you'll keep saying no, 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 and then they'll answer you a question that you need to actually answer yes to. And so you always remember sitting there concentrating so hard on what she was saying. And then you get this, and the fact that I don't remember, was I wearing a top, was I not wearing a top, which pyjama top was I wearing, or whatever. And you get this creeping sense that this is a completely hopeless. And then she's putting it to you that actually you just had sex with him and you just regretted it. And you were too afraid to tell your friends. <laughs> and you're sitting there thinking, why would I do all of this? Do you not comprehend what is happening to me right now? I'm sitting in a room full of strangers with you asking me all these awful questions and you really think I'd do all of this just to avoid telling my friends that I had sex with a guy that didn't go well? It would just felt endless. She just kept coming. She kept coming. How long in reality do you think it was? So, I think it was easily a couple of hours, maybe three. Wow. It was long. Okay. And then, just to describe an incident that presumably you know, took a few minutes. Y- yeah. I mean, how, asking, mu- how much is there to say? I exactly, because she's asking the questions every which way, yeah. every possible way, every permutation, putting it to me, all these different scenarios of things that weren't true. Then the judge ended it early because there was another case that had to come in. So it was supposed to have been done in the one day. But he looks, the judge looks at me and says, can you come back tomorrow? And I just, I just sort of nodded. I mean, it's not like I have a choice. So yeah, at that point I was starting to regret it. At that point I was starting to to think this was totally not going to happen. And then when they when they ended it um early, I so there's a clerk who walks you through judges' chambers. So I went out to the top of this little staircase and she was waiting for me and she looks at me and goes, It's not personal. It's not personal. And I was too completely traumatised. I didn't say anything. I didn't. I just started following her. But it's <laughs> what a thing to say to someone who has just been ripped apart on the stand talking about them being raped. Mm. It's the most personal thing you could even consider. Like I, I can't get my head around why she thought that was... I don't know if she thought that was supposed to be comforting or... Oh, really? Because actually, I can. I know what she was trying to say. I think she was trying to be reassuring. She was trying to say, look, this is a cold legal process. Mm. It's awful that you're upset. But don't take it personally. I completely understand why you think that's a ridiculous yeah. thing to say. <laughs> it is. But I mean, I mean, what can you say to someone when... What she's trying to say is, I presume, yeah. stick with this process. I don't know. I think that I think she yeah she probably just didn't think to have someone say that to me in that moment was mm. literally the worst possible thing she could have said to me it's like because it makes it seem like oh it's actually fine <laughs> you're fine so I'm not fine I feel like I can barely even put one foot in front of the other and so the idea of going back the next day was it was horrendous so I was staying at a friend's flat she had been she had been away so she said we could have the flat because I couldn't I didn't want to go back to my parents. So we were just sitting there. I don't even remember what we did that evening. And then I had to go back the next morning. It was horrible for me to have it dragged out in that way. But I suppose it meant that when I started again the next morning, I had kind of a renewed sense of, let's just get this done. There was, I think there was a point where they were showing photos of my room. And I'm a bit of a messy person. So my room was a bit of a mess. And so then you were like... Great, there's my messy room on a screen in front of all these strangers. And they probably think, oh, well, she's super messy, so she deserved to be raped. <laughs> That's the sort of crap that goes through your mind. I think the judge even said, presumably, there isn't normally all of this stuff. And I was like, that's really great. You're there to judge whether or not I was raped, not to judge me on my tidiness. Mm. Like, brilliant. Thank you so much. So then it was over and then I and then I just left. How do you find out what the verdict is? So the trial went on for a couple more days because I was the first person. One of my friends who was my character witness, he actually sat in watching the guy's testimony and told me a bit about it, which was horrible. What, and what was the basis of his defence? He was basically trying to make me out that I was completely nuts, 
because I did psychology at university. Because mm. I think I'd shown him some stuff, like a blog that I'd written about like psychology. And so then he was trying to make out that it was some blog about like psychopathy or something. And I was basically completely mad. That was pretty much the best that he could come up with. So I was just sitting at home and then I get the call from the policeman like two days later. And he said, he was guilty. I said, well, what was the sentence? And I think it hadn't happened yet, but he said, well, the guy has no priors, so it will be maybe possibly two, three, four years. And that's what it was, it was four years. And four years means two, really, and then two on probation. And I remember sitting there thinking, four years is good, but four years is crap. <laughs> like, maybe it's more than I thought, but it's actually four years, really? This guy has just broken me. Presumably he gets on the sex offenders register too, though. Yes. I mean, that... I don't know. I've I've never actually met someone with your experience before, but from what I've read and seen, that's a reassurance, isn't it? This is less likely to happen to another woman because yes. he's on the sex offenders register. Yes. So and that's really what you're getting. It is, yeah. He'd be on the sex offenders list for life. So that was something. But at the time, I didn't really see it that way. Sure. Because it was basically two years and then two years on probation, it felt like nothing. Well, given that I'd waited 18 months for the trial, I was like, I know how quickly that can go. Mm. That's nothing. I think the problem is you're supposed to feel a resolution. Yes, or you, exactly. Or you probably feel you're supposed to feel a resolution. Yes, and I didn't. Well, psychology doesn't work like that, does no, it? No, <laughs> exactly. I didn't feel like it was justice. And then I felt bad because so few women get that. So few women report it. The ones that do, so few women get to trial. And then the ones that do... They won't be found guilty. The guy won't be found guilty. So I felt like I should feel lucky. That I felt like I should feel more kind of privileged that I'd got the verdict. How did this experience affect your relationships? Did you meet anyone? I actually met my now fiancé two, three months before the trial. So I that was another thing I'd had to tell him. You know, we'd barely been dating in a couple of months and I'd had to tell him this has happened to me, number one. I would have had to tell him anyway. Then, not long after that, I then had to say, because we work together, I am going to disappear <laughs> for four days and this is why. And that was a lot. And he's, he's just, he's the best person. He's the best person. Because how do you, how do you deal with that girl telling you like two, three months into your relationship that this has happened to her and by the way she's going to go to trial and who knows what is going to happen after that mm. and he was amazing Did it affect your ability to feel close to him at first though? Yes, it did What's the coping mechanism to get around that? Talking You have to be able to talk about it You have to be able to try as much as you yourself understand you have to be able to try and communicate that to him mm. Because he has no idea, and that's not his fault. When did you find out that he was due to be released? So I obviously knew, like, I keep the date in the back of my mind. I can't forget it. Um, so it was coming up to the two years. So it would have been March, so I think it was around January when I started thinking, shit, <laughs> that's, that's come around really quickly. Were you actually worried he'd make contact with you? So I had the choice to put certain conditions on his bail. So one of them was that he couldn't contact me. Uh-huh. We had the choice to put an exclusion zone on it, which would mean that he wouldn't be allowed within, I don't know, miles or however many of us, of where I was. But because I was no longer living in the place where I was living when the crime was committed, yeah. it's kind of counterintuitive because then I'd be telling him where I'm living, even yes. though he wouldn't be able to go near me. So we didn't do that. Then I actually moved again. So then I got a new victim liaison officer. And one of the first things that she told me was that he technically had been bailed. But because he was from outside of the EU, immigration wanted to get hold of him. So it's two separate departments. So they wanted to deport him? Yes. Because he'd committed a crime or separate? Because he'd committed a crime. Right, okay. So... Even though he could have been out on on probation, on licence, immigration kept him in prison. 
so obviously in that sense I was like okay well that's good I guess but because this immigration part of it was a whole new process for him he was allowed to apply for bail from the immigration service so it'd be the same as if as when he was first arrested for the crime he was out on bail right so immigration don't know anything about me mm-hmm. so in order to get bail from immigration he had to give them an address that he would go that he would go and live at whilst on bail and they would go and investigate that address and the main things for them to decide whether or not it was a suitable address is whether or not it was near vulnerable people because he was on the sex offenders register mm-hmm. so if it was near a school mm-hmm. if it was near an old people's home and so I had the victim liaison woman she came over to me and she said the address that he's given so if I was to say to you I live in N1 the address that he had given was in N3 the two postcodes are long yeah you could drive like 10 minutes down the road. All of the transport that I would get to go anywhere to go to work would have to go through that area. But because it was a separate department, the fact that I lived there was completely irrelevant. I mean, how is that even... I mean, if she knows about yeah. it and she's telling you about yeah. it, it doesn't seem beyond the yeah. limits of human capability for her to pick up the phone and tell them, does it? So she said the problem is, is that if we were to say what my address was... Then he knows where you live. Then he knows where I live. Mm. So I was like, can you not give it to immigration? Why did immigration have to tell him? Mm. She's like, well, they'd have to tell his lawyer. So I was in this situation where I had to either put up with him knowing that he was going to be living near me or have him know where I lived. And that, I'm guessing there really isn't support for that situation. No. I mean, you've said that there was already a, you know, a disappointing lack of support relevant yeah. to your situation when you were reporting it. Yeah. But this situation is one you just don't hear about. Yeah. I mean, I, God knows, I don't know how many people it happens to. I don't know if I'm the only one. Like, this is just one of those additional things. You're like, you can't even conceive of that happening. But that said, I mean, I get totally what you're saying, major transport links, etc. But you mm. are talking about London. One of yes. the biggest cities in the world. The chance of you running into him, even if he lives 10 minutes down the road, are slim. Yes. You must have been thinking that too. No. <laughs> <laughs> and I get what you're saying, because that's the rational part of your brain, right? That's yeah. saying that. But that's not how you feel. That's not how I felt. And it was actually Christmas Eve when he got bailed. I was standing in my spare room, started rearranging my bookshelves. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. And my fiancé came home and found me and he hadn't known because I hadn't told him. And I was just standing there rearranging my bookshelves and saying, he's out. He's out. What did he say? Well, he didn't know what to say. He just hugged me. I had a call from the local police to say... We know this has happened. This is a number you can call if you see him. I was told about the restrictions that had been put on him, so he had a curfew, so he wasn't allowed out between 9pm and 9am. So again, you're thinking rationally, yes, if I'm on a train coming home at night from having been out, like that's great, he shouldn't even be out of the house. So theoretically, I don't need to worry. And then it was just thinking, okay, if I'm on the tube in the day, if I'm commuting from work... If he was to get on the tube and see me, he would have to immediately get off, well, obviously at the next station, and report it to his probation officer. And that was presented to me as, okay, this is this is fine, because he'll have to this do that. Fine. This is fine. The guy yeah. who raped you is obviously exactly. going to be charged with immense responsibility. Right? Yes, there's no consideration to, okay, if he gets on and he doesn't see me, but I see him, yeah. what does that do to me? It was a long time that he was out and that I felt like I was living... I had a friend who moved to this area where he was in and it wasn't like a tiny village. Yes, it was a part of London. But I was like, I'm sorry, sorry, I can't come to your house. I cannot ever come to your house. And this is why. Did they understand why? Yeah, she understood. But it's just, how many more ways do I have to restrict my life because of what this man has done to me? Mm. There's already certain things I don't watch, certain things I can't read certain you know situations i can't put myself in because of what he's done to me how many more ways is he going to restrict my life what are the things you can't watch and read i mean this comes on to a really important conversation about trigger warnings like so many people all i feel like i hear is everything that's wrong with trigger warnings right that it's that it's censorship or it's just because people are snowflakes or whatever and the great joke of it is that it's not if I know that there's going to be like a TV show that has like a really graphic rape scene, I won't watch it. 
that's just sensible. <laughs> that's just protecting myself because why would I want to watch it? I guess the problem is, you know, if you're watching a sort of grisly cop drama, yeah. it might not be advertised that it has exactly. a Exactly. I mean, most cop point. dramas at some point will. Yes, and that's that's it. That's the thing. I don't see why people hate trigger warnings so much because all you'd have to do is put the trigger warning on it and then I know not to watch it. It's not censorship because the TV show is still on. The person who created it still got to create it. It's still out there. Loads of people get to be delighted by it. I just get to have power over my own mind. So there was a point, it was around the time that he got released, that I had a nervous breakdown. I'd seen all these things. There was stuff in books. I'd read a book and suddenly it took me by surprise. There was a rape scene. It would be a TV show. And I can't unsee them. And so I can't forget them. And so there was a point where I had this like reel of actresses being raped going round and round my head. So it wasn't even about me being raped anymore. It was just this hyper-awareness of how many women it happens to and feeling like it was everywhere. And I sat, I sat on the sofa for five weeks just staring into space because I, I couldn't even move. I was too terrified to go and do anything. And then people say we can't have trigger warnings because it's censorship. And I'm just like, you don't get it. The people who say that have not been raped. I put money on it. If you could improve things, how would you change things? Either in terms of the law or the way things are discussed. I mean, my God, the law, like much better sentencing for a start and generally just not treating the victim like they're guilty, not treating the victim like they've done something wrong and that they need to prove themselves. More information, because I... I've never read anything like my own story. And I don't think my story is that different. Like, yes, there are certain elements, like it is less likely that you're going to get a guilty verdict. The whole immigration thing, completely left field. But the main components of it, of what it feels like, of how it's going to impact your life, of how how to deal with relationships, how to deal with friendships, how to deal with medical appointments, how to deal with jobs, how to deal with mental health. There just isn't that there. And women's charities are just so un- chronically underfunded that they can barely keep themselves by water and just be trying to help like the victims who are absolutely at like the worst end of desperately need it. But then if, you, if you're able to pick yourself back up, if you're able to go on with your life, you get nothing. Did your attacker get deported? Yes. Do you find yourself Googling him? No, I did before he got released. I was Googling him trying to find his court records because there was like a moment where I wanted to know what he'd said Mm. about me and wanted, and I couldn't find it. What I could find was a summary, I think, of an appeal. And the judge had said, he shows no remorse. And I just thought, wow. How often do you think of him now? Not that often. I've worked so hard on myself, I've tried to turn this into something of mine because that's the thing is that it happens to you it happens to you it's done to you so the only way I felt I could get through it was saying okay I'm taking ownership of this this is not about him anymore this is about me this is about how I've recovered what I continue to deal with how I can be strong from it and how I can talk about it so that other people don't feel as alone as I felt Martha Adam. And after the interview with Martha, I asked her if there were any recommendations of organisations she could offer us who help victims of rape. And she sent us a couple of suggestions. I will link to those on our website, modernman.co.uk. And if you, like Martha, think your story is worth hearing, remember, you can email us via the website as well. Just click feedback. A complete change of pace next. Alex Fox talks moon cups after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
Okay, time to go to the down belows. It's the foxhole with Alex Fox. How are you, Alex? I'm great, Ollie, but we're going to be talking about the up aboves as well because, as you know, so much about relationships is about the mind too. And this <laughs> week, I have been investigating synesthesia. Remind me. Synesthesia is a condition where one sensory stimulus, so uh, if you see something with your eyes or hear something with your ears, will provoke a second sensory response that wouldn't usually be there. So you'll taste something with your mouth or smell something with your nose. Oh yeah, and you you have that, don't you? I do, I do. Some people who have had synesthesia will hear a particular piece of music and they will spontaneously taste raspberries. Or seeing a word with a lot of G's in it, it will look... Uh, yellow to them. So it's it's that kind of sensory crossover. And how does this manifest in you? Well, I have quite a rare form. The NHS reckon about 4% of people in the UK have some type of synesthesia, but I experience what are called olfactory hallucinations, which means that I perceive scents that aren't there when I receive a particular stimulus connected to emotion or location. Scents as in smells? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I I I smell things that don't exist. Um so if I'm really stressed then the whole world will smell of wet metallic railings. I, and it works if I if I inhale more strongly then the scent gets stronger too. Um I've lived with my flatmate for almost 2 years and it took me 6 months to realize that he was not hiding cherry bakewells from me. It was just that uh, when I was home and feeling content and calm and safe that I was experiencing smells of almond fondant. It's wow. often sweet smells when I'm happy. So. And now he knows that he can hide cherry bakewells from you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Mr. Kiplings are probably secreted <laughs> all over our apartment. Yeah. Goodness. So who needs spidey senses when you've got foxy senses? Well, my foxy senses do affect my love life as well. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm starting to feel uh, intimately bonded to somebody in a romantic sense, then in the past they've often invoked uh, citrusy smells for me. So they'll start to smell of lemony washing up liquid or lemon bonbons or lemon sherbet. And you said you've been thinking about this this week. Why? Because over several years now, I've been interviewing fellow synesthetes to see if my experience is completely unique or if anyone else out there is having similar, uh, is, is going through similar things to me. Are you going to put together a supergroup? And I chatted to one guy called Scott from Canada, um, who's an openly gay bloke, who says that when he has intimate experiences with other men, um, whilst he doesn't smell sweeties like I do, he does smell a um, sense of jasmine and earth, uh, which also happens to me. Sometimes my lady garden smells like Kew Gardens. Goodness. Uh, right, time for our uh, listener question of the week. It's from Joanna, who says, I have a question about periods. I've been using a menstrual cup during my period for about six Six years now and I love it particularly the fact that I'm not creating tons of waste each month uh, menstrual cup for the uninitiated briefly uh, it's a little silicone it kind of looks like an egg cup with a little stem on the end of it you fold it up it nestles against your cervix and it collects menstrual fluids you can leave it up in there about eight hours or so and then you uh, take it out empty it down the toilet give it a wash and pop it back in it's great for the environment because you buy it once and it lasts between 10 and 20 years so you've got to sterilize it obviously but it's, it's very ecologically sound and lots of women find that because you can leave it in longer than you can a tampon that's more convenient too. Well, she says, I've also recently had an IUD inserted. <laughs> Again, definition, interurinary device. Very close, Ollie. It's an intrauterine device. Uh-huh. Um, it's a little T-shaped device that's inserted by a professional doctor or a nurse. It slides up uh, through the cervical opening and into the womb itself where it springs open and it's a form of contraception, a very effective one at that, is around 99% or more efficient at preventing pregnancy. Okay, well, Joanne continues. Previously, two of my IUDs have expelled themselves, and because of this, my nurse suggested that I refrain from using my menstrual cup. Now, as far as I'm aware, both the IUD and the menstrual cup manufacturers say there is no link between the cup use and the expulsion, but I'd rather not go through that again. So, Alex, are you aware of other options for quote-unquote eco-periods? I've heard of special pants that one can wear, but my period is normally extremely heavy, so I'm not sure that is the option for me.
If you are someone for whom disposable products are more convenient or you might want to use them now and again and not use something that's completely terrible for the earth, there are lots of brands out there that are organic, that are unbleached, that are biodegradable. There's tons of options that don't involve plastic and aren't as terrible for the planet as as traditional disposable products. Um, I'm thinking of brands like Frida, uh, TOTM, which stands for Time of the Month, uh, Kalali, there's a newish one called uh, One, it's spelled O-H-N-E. And I think not long ago, we also discussed the Kickstarter project by um, uh, a company called Dame, who were creating a reusable applicator for tampons. So you could uh, use that along with a biodegradable organic tampon if you did want a disposable option that wasn't so damning for future generations. However, there are also washable pads that you can get. So a pad that you can change and then chuck in the washing machine Mm -hmm. might be the way forward. Lots of them have wings that fold around the outside of your pants and are fixed together with snaps, so they're not going to slide out of place. And they are also quite cleverly designed so that once you've used them, those same snaps can be used to um, fold up the sanitary towel and hold it together, and then you can pop it in a little Ziploc bag or whatever. So it is easy to transport if you're at the office or if you're out and about until you can get home and launder them. She's mentioned menstrual knickers. I've had a lot of success with these. Uh, I've got a couple of pairs one by uh, a company called Moddy Body, uh, another by uh, another brand called Thinks. There's a few out there. There's a great new startup actually called Wooka. Uh, it stands for Wake Up Kick Ass. And these are um, pants that have a, a very thin but very absorbent panel inside of the gusset. Is there a less sexy word on this planet <laughs> than gusset? Um, and you just uh, run, rinse them under the tap. You can wear them for around eight hours. So they offer a similar kind of time span to a traditional tampon once you're done with them you just rinse the the blood and the gunk off under the cold tap and then slam them in your washing machine it's best not to use fabric conditioner with them because that can um, negatively affect their absorbency over the long term how much blood can one pair of pants handle though it depends on your individual flow sure uh, moddy body tell me that one of their pairs of pants can absorb between 15 and 20 mils of liquid so that's around three tampons worth okay so you could wear it the whole day finally when i put this question out uh, into the ether of the internet a few people said that they'd had a lot of success with sea sponges and so i spoke to a company called natural intimacy I've got to say I'm really on the fence about these, which is an appropriately uncomfortable place to rest your vulva. Brands like Natural Intimacy say that um, these sea sponges can be inserted inside you exactly like you would a tampon, but and, with and no And to string. be fair, this is presumably what women were using for centuries before, you know, tampons came along. Yes, but women have been doing all sorts of things and, and so have men to that their bodies that we now sensible. know are not great. Sure. Yeah, like we, we plastered our faces with lead-based paint for a long time. Sure, and, you know, but a sponge is a natural absorbing thing so you can see why it makes sense yes but on one level. natural and recommended for sticking inside of your clunge are those two things are not <laughs> don't always get along with each other sure now the brands who sell them say that sea sponges are natural reusable washable products that can last between six months and a year depending on uh, how much wear and tear they get and that you should use them by uh, washing the blood out Uh, with soap and water and then I quote uh, kill germs using bicarbonate of soda hmm cynical face vinegar ditto hydrogen peroxide tea tree oil which can be I'd be very careful with that because that can be very caustic Mm. and strong Uh, it's not something I'd certainly not something I'd want to put anywhere near my flump neat or that you can briefly boil them now these brands like natural intimacy don't claim that their sponges are sterile but they argue that lots of shop-bought tampons aren't either and you know there are women carrying around a tampax or whatever in their handbag for god knows how long and then using their hands to put it up themselves so I can see their argument they also liken it to the difference between a waxed an apple that's been wrapped in plastic versus a fresh one from a farmer's market that's still fine for you but it might have a little bit of grubbiness on the outside or whatever this is something that interests me I would say proceed with caution do your research yeah I mean certainly as part of the research I guess go to a company that has uh, favorable customer interactions don't just use the sponge that your nan brought back from Crete as a souvenir 
If you've got a question of sex or genitals or whatever for next week's show, what do you have to do with it? Head to our website, which is modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and hit feedback. You can give me your name if you want or you can remain anonymous and furnish me with as much or as little detail about your personal predicament as you wish. And remember as well that you can follow Alex on social media for more where that came from. And I'm at Alex Fox, A-L-I-X-F-O-X. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this week's Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new man ambassador. It is Lottie from West Dumbartonshire, who says, Ollie, I finally bought you a beer after listening since the beginning. Every episode is interesting, even if from the title, I think it won't be for me. I'd love to be man ambassador for West Dumbartonshire, where I've recently moved to from London, and I hope to make some new pals through a man-fan base. Uh, well, Lottie, I'm, I'm pleased to appoint you ambassador for West Dumbartonshire. Congratulations. I don't know if we can help you make friends. I know we have quite a few listeners in Glasgow, but I'm not sure about Alexandria or Balloch. But uh, if you're up there and you'd like to be Lottie's mate, let us know and we'll put you in touch. Uh, our music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you next Tuesday. So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.